Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Senator Ratna Omidvar. An immigrant herself, her life's work has been dedicated to improving the lives of newcomers here in Canada, and she is recognized internationally as an expert on migration, diversity, and inclusion. Among too many roles to count, she's the past president of the Maytree Foundation, the former head of Ryerson's Global Diversity Exchange, and she's still involved with the World Refugee Council. As a senator, she's worked to hold Myanmar accountable for its genocide against the Rohingya, including a motion to strip Aung San Suu Kyi of her honorary Canadian citizenship. She's tabled a bill that builds on the Magnitsky Act to support the forcibly displaced, and she is a powerful advocate for people in need, including those in poverty. Senator Omidvar, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Nate, for having me. We were supposed to talk before the throne speech because you were actually maybe the only but one of the few senators who sent an email around with your priorities in advance of the throne speech. Yes. And unfortunately, we weren't able to get this together in advance. Now we have the throne speech that's out there. What was your feedback? What, was, what were your thoughts in answer to the throne speech? Let me frame it as, you know, what I liked about the throne speech and what I was uh, disappointed by not having found a place in the throne speech. So that's fair. Obviously, you know, the safety of Canadians is top of mind. I was pleased to hear that the measures that were proposed in the throne speech, uh, the health of our economy is top of mind. I was pleased to hear that the government is going to roll out a bill as they did, C4, in providing emergency relief to Canadians and to businesses. So, you know, those top two prevailing issues were dealt with as best they can be, I, I think. I was also really, really pleased to hear a mention of uh, skills training, which I think is really important, skills training post-pandemic. But we've ha had a need in this country to invest in upgrading and retooling skills training for years. And, you know, now this, is a, uh, this crisis has brought this to the forefront and obviously over the moon about the promise on childcare. Now, whether it has legs on legs to it, we'll have to see. So much depends upon the, the budget and the fiscal update to come to deliver on the throne speech. And, you know, how will how will we negotiate with provinces on this? You know, I was also, by the way, pretty delighted by the granular promises made on anti-racism, you know, online hate, disaggregated data. But what I found interesting was that where the government had the authority to act on its own, it was far more precise and descriptive. Where it needed the support of, of the provinces, it was far more nuanced, such as in childcare and long-term health and, and, and stuff like that. Where I was disappointed, and I think you know we all share in this disappointment that the universal basic income did not make it in, although there is a promise and it was in Bill C4, long overdue reform of the EI system. I have found it to be unbelievable that you pay, you know, workers pay into the EI system, and yet the qualifying criteria have risen incrementally since the time I came to Canada, 1981. You know, the bar for actually accessing government support has gotten higher and higher. I've always wondered, there's no basket clause in the legislation that says, for compassionate reasons, in these circumstances, exactly. Exactly. there are very specific exactly. ways of getting exactly. access for exemptions, yeah. and yeah. then that's it. Yeah. So I was, I was disappointed about universal basic income. I was disappointed that the government missed an opportunity to name charities as essential partners in the recovery. 
And I think we all know that charities have played an essential role in providing Canadians with measures of safety and security, food security, personal security, mental health security during the crisis. And as we come out of it, I hope we're coming out of it. I continue to worry. As we come out of it, a strong, stable, charitable sector is essential for the recovery. And and I was really disappointed not to see a placeholder on, on the role of charities in helping Canada recover and, you know, in fact, be better than it was before. So, you know, plus minus, this is politics. You get some, you lose some. I had read that you gave it a, a, a seven out of 10. You stand by that? I gave it a seven out of 10 because I was particularly pleased about long-standing aspirations of Canadians. Childcare, I gave it a seven out of 10. A lot of those numbers belong to the childcare promise, to EI reform, to skills training. These are all, if they are realized, they will lift poor people to a better uh, place. And I think that has always been my concern, which is not to say that we're not going to keep fighting, you and I, for universal basic income, because I think that is the next tranche of social welfare policies that we may well want to think about. And I, I dropped the the U to that moniker because when we talk about universal basic income, this idea of sending checks to everyone, I prefer the Canada Child Benefit and GIS for Seniors model that says if you earn an income below a certain amount, then you get a top up. And if you earn no income at all, you, you there's yeah. a minimum floor essentially that is established. I would say there's language in there about building an EI system for the 21st century. And that I take to mean hopefully C4, but maybe beyond C4 down the road, if we can see what gaps remain in the coming months. And then in addition, I was hardened, I suppose, to see a focus on this disability inclusion piece that included a disability benefit that is effectively a basic income modeled on GIS for seniors. Because I thought if we could get the employment system right for people who are capable of working, and then for people who are not capable of working, obviously, there is also an employment strategy for people with disabilities, because some people obviously with disabilities can work, not all though. And so if we can get those two pillars right, maybe we are very close to complete coverage and a permanently strengthened social safety net. So you and I are both politicians in a way, and we look for windows that open and that we can keep pushing open. Uh, And I agree with you completely. I do not like the terminology UBI or GLI, because it gives, and when I talk to people on the street, they say they don't like it. And I say, why don't you like it? And it's got to do with language. I believe that in the next stage of our fight, let's find new language. I think that's right. And that's why I have emphasized what the conversation really boils down to is a matter of strengthening our social safety net so nobody is left behind. And I don't care what we call it. It can be through the EI system. It can be through something modeled on GIS for seniors, which is obviously an established program for decades and works. But whatever it is, it's this notion of leaving nobody behind and making sure there's a minimum floor below which nobody falls. And I was also appreciative of a very technical promise in some ways, but default tax filing, because that will ensure that so many people who are eligible for benefits today, but they're not receiving the benefits that they're entitled to. Now people will receive the benefits to which they're entitled. And they will get alerted to other benefits that they don't access, such as, you know, the contribution 
to our ESPs. So there are lots of uh, good things that will come out of that. I think, Nate, you give it a 7 out of 10 too. From <laughs> I may give it a 7. I think a 7 out of 10 is probably pretty fair. Yeah. I, okay. I might give it a 7.5. I'm not sure. I, yeah. I haven't thought through the, 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 the metric system there. But I would say, having read a lot, a lot of uh, your writing and, and commentary in the last little while, in the election, you were writing about the need for an effective basic income. And the crisis really has brought this conversation to the fore, but a conversation that you were already asking us to have. Yeah. And I think, as you said, we've now created the conditions for the conversation. The opening of the EI piece will propel further discussions, but with new language. You know, I I think it is important to call it a means-tested basic income, something like that. I, I Maybe we need to get an English prof to instill some poetry into that. But new language and a new opportunity, maybe in the next parliament, we we may have an opportunity again. And I've seen some very progressive people online say, let's not focus on a basic income when we can do with the same dollars, childcare, universal pharmacare, and they start to say services instead. And fair arguments in some respects, but I, I would say my general response is, they're not emphasizing and prioritizing poverty reduction in the same way that I am. And I, I take from your work with the Maytree Foundation previously and, and your emphasis on poverty reduction that you come to the same place that I do and yeah. for the same reasons that if our priority is poverty reduction, well, actually a basic income gets us there in a much more serious way than the other services that are proposed. You know, the people I most worry about, Nate, are the single people, the, the young single man or woman who has graduated from university with debt owing, maybe the first person in their household to have attended college or university, and now the economy is crashing around them. I worry about people like that, that we may never be able to pull them out of poverty and into the economy unless there is a basic income floor for them. And I I keep that individual in mind. It, It always helps me when I keep a picture of the person in mind that we're wanting to help. And, uh, you know, we have supports. There's never enough supports, but there are supports for children, child benefit. There are support for seniors, the guaranteed income supplement, old age security. It seems we've got those two right. We've now got to get this right. And those battles, let's look back in history. Those were not easy to get to. So, you know, we're just repeating history, but with a view to success in mind. And when you look to the other area that you felt was lackluster in the throne speech where charities were not explicitly mentioned, you have led efforts in the Senate on, I think it was Catalyst for Change. There were a series of recommendations. The one that I've seen you highlight a few times in your writing outside of the Senate in the media, and that I just personally think is a really good idea, is giving charities and empowering charities through a legislative change empowering them to earn profits that they can then put back into their charitable activities. And right now we have a very arcane and really outdated legislative framework that really hasn't kept up with what other countries are doing to support charities. I agree. And, you know, Nate, as we came to our conclusion in the Senate Charities Committee, we looked at at the trend lines in how charities finance themselves. There are only three ways they get money. One, they get money through government grants and the trend line is downward. Next, they get money from Canadians and from Canadian foundations. That trend line is also down. The only trend line 
that speaks to some promise to secure their finances is earned revenue. And we put real constraints around charities on how they can earn revenue. So you can earn revenue if you run a related business that is staffed primarily by volunteers. Let's say the hospital gift shop or the museum gift shop. And most of these rules benefit, the current rules benefit the big institutions. The smaller charities who have to raise revenue through many different ways are constrained. And and what we recommended in the Senate report is let's play a little in the regulatory sandbox and let's allow a finite number of charities to conduct earned revenue activities as an experiment and let the Department of Finance and CRA assess whether or not, and these are the fears, whether or not earning revenue so seduce the charity, that's the prevailing fear, that they will stop being charitable and start running a business. That's the first fear. And the second fear is, well, does this not get in the way of legitimate businesses who have to pay taxes, whereas charities are exempt from taxes? And that's a a real concern. I will point out that there were a number of cases brought in front of the U.S. courts, and they were fitness clubs, I believe, contesting the supremacy of the YMCAs in fitness regimes. And that was swatted down by the courts. I'm not aware of any case law in Canada, but I think it is time for us to do what we what we very cautiously recommended to the government is do an experiment, test it out, test the waters, and then let's talk again. Yeah, I thought it was actually quite a modest recommendation in some respects, because we already have these rules in other jurisdictions in Australia, in New Zealand. I I remember this is years ago, but when I was a student in Queen's Law, and I was participating in a business law clinic, and a student group came to me and they wanted to purchase a property and then earn income from the property that they they would save to buy future properties and operate kind of like a co-op. And there was no easy path to getting that done in a Canadian context. Then I was in Bangladesh a a few years ago and you see BRAC, this organization that is almost government-like in the amount of money it spends, billions of dollars. They Mm -hmm. finance almost self sufficient entirely when it comes to, they've got a BRAC bank that is a for-profit arm and and other activities that fund their development activities. And then you look at the WE scandal here in Canada, and they have this Byzantine structure completely lacking transparency. And one of their explanations was that Canadian law, and they're right about this, requires some bizarre corporate structures. You know what? Leaving aside the other issues around WE, I will concede that they were completely right on certain uh, facts that they presented. They wanted to stay within the limits of the law. And the law states that you can't run a business that is not a related business and if it's not run mostly by volunteers. So they had this, you know, travel thing and bracelet thing that they were doing and they had to set up a separate. Now, mind you, the, the we Byzantine structure is unusual in in the extreme. Probably we only needed two organizations. They needed the organization that would earn profits and then they needed the charity. They they may not have needed so very many corporate structures. I've worked with charities all my life. I'll tell you something. Charities are really frightened of breaking the law because the consequences to them are severe. Charitable status gets revoked and it's very, very difficult to appeal the revocation at the federal court. 
you know, you know this, we are a famously risk-averse country, you know, and we want to do things in a certain way. But, you know, I'm trying to push through all the witnesses we heard. You know, this is not an idea that I've come to on my own. There were stakeholders who testified. There were academics who spoke about this. So, you know, it's a cautious move, but the right move to make. And, and look at the rise of social enterprises. They're sort of hybrid. They, they, they straddle uh, exactly. charities and not-for-profits. And the rules concerning how charities can work with social enterprises are bizarre, and they need to be updated as well. And, and that, I think, is the fundamental point, that if we want to encourage social entrepreneurship in this country, mm-hmm. we need to make sure the rules are changed to support social entrepreneurship in this country, because currently they get in the way of it. Yeah. And obviously, this one rule change isn't going to solve the, the current crisis for charities. And there was some immediate dollars from the government, I think $350 million immediately to support charities in delivering COVID-related response. But we haven't seen a charities package beyond that. And I've certainly heard, I just heard from the Toronto Vegetarian Association, but I've heard from other charities as well, that their model of fundraising is different, or they run one event that raises most of their financing. And the current measures that the government's put forward through the wage subsidy and the rent relief program They've not been perfectly suited for the charitable sector. And because of your work through the Senate and having all of these witnesses attend and building those relationships, have you heard the same thing? I've heard precisely the same thing and more. In fact, the charitable sector is, if I may put it in blunt words, in pretty dire straits. The layoffs are going to be uh, incredible. And what the sector needed was a stabilization kind of fund. You know, let's help you, just as the as in the throne speech, uh, a tourism sector was mentioned. I believe the cultural sector was mentioned. The airlines were mentioned. I would have really liked to have seen charities uh, because we know we can't recover without charities, but charities need their own recovery as well. You know, many of them depend on one event a year to get them through the rest of the year. Well, guess what's happened to event? We we know that. You know, I'm really concerned for charities. I'm concerned for the numbers of people that will be laid, laid off. I'm concerned about the numbers of people who will not get services. You know, one example would be the Boys and Girls Clubs in this country. They do essential work in keeping children connected, engaged, safe. And I know that The clubs are in some financial difficulty along with many, many others. There was mention in the throne speech of sector-specific supports. And so in the same way that we are likely to see government relief that is specific to, say, hospitality and tourism, there may be a window to say we still need sector-specific support for charities. And especially because, and, and you just noted, in a private sector context, you're concerned about jobs and you're concerned about the people who have put their lives on the line to run these businesses as entrepreneurs. But in the charitable sector, you're also especially concerned about the services that they deliver to people in need, the essential services that they deliver to people in need. And if we lose those essential services, there's going to be knock-on detrimental effects for for our society. You, in another context, have written about essential work, but focused on essential workers. And it's a concern we share. I was taking the grocery stores to task for cutting pandemic pay for essential workers, but you have rightly placed essential workers in the context of our immigration system because so many essential workers are migrant workers. You know what what has happened in Canada's immigration policy is that we have slowly but very surely become addicted to skilled workers. And I think skilled workers are essential to our labor market, essential to our innovation, but no economy works at just one end of the spectrum. 
you know, you have to take a whole of the economy approach. And we have uh, relied on temporary workers, on uh, migrant labor to fill those jobs that Canadians do not want to have. I know that there's lots of conversation about this, but the latest pandemic efforts and and I believe a province trying to fill its labor market pool uh, in farms through students and, and unemployed Canadians did not succeed. I think we just have to recognize that there is a certain and it's not unskilled, by the way. Migrant laborers need skills. They need to know how to seed, how to fertilize, how to pick, how to pack, how to crop all of this. Is, is not unskilled work. It's work that comes with experience. And we bring in 60,000 essential migrant laborers every year. And we bring in temporary farm workers who work as personal support workers every year. And my position, and I will keep, keep working on it, is that if they are so essential to the health and safety of Canadians for our food supply, for the care of our senior citizens, and for making sure our retail operations are running, then we should treat them as such and provide a pathway to permanency, which does not exist right now. There is no pathway to permanency, not not a significant pathway. The minister has got a, a small pilot going, but you know, I think this is not the time for tentativeness. This is the time for courage, and this is the time for determination, And this is the time to say, this is how Canada was built. You know, in in 1907, we didn't have engineers and doctors and lawyers coming to our country. We had cold weather farmers. And they came and settled the West. And their children lead our country now. And that has been our narrative. We have to get over this. Oh, we, we cannot have unskilled people coming because they will be a drain on the public purse. That is remarkably self-serving. And we turn a blind eye to the lives of these essential workers who are separated, personal support workers are separated from their own children for years on end, for years on end. They look after our senior citizens and cannot see their own children. Migrant laborers come every year. Some of them have been coming for 20 years and that's their life. They come and work in Canada for six months and they go back home. Now, some of them may actually want to do that, you know, granted, but some of them, may actually like a route to permanency. And I'm not suggesting permanency on landing. I, I don't think we quite have the guts or the stomach for it. I could be wrong. <laughs> I spoke to Faye Faraday. She was she was asking for just that. But I take from the government's early days response specific to asylum seekers and, and migrant workers in the healthcare setting. And we see Minister Menachino say we have to have a pathway to residency. And so there has been this narrow focus on healthcare workers specifically to ensure migrant workers have a pathway to residency. If that's the initial step, probably your argument for a two-step pathway across the board for essential workers and, and, and migrant workers yeah. is more politically possible. Yeah, and it's incremental. I think the activists in the field will throw lots of stones at me, but that's okay, because I think change comes very rarely in a transformational nanosecond almost always comes incrementally, although this could be the time for that major disruption. I really wish them well. If they are able to do that, I'm I'm on their side, but I'm also a political pragmatist in the meantime. So I kind of want to push the conversation along. Right now, the doors seem to be tightly shut on permanency for migrant 
farmers. And I think we have to keep nudging it up. And there was a commitment in the throne speech to protect those migrant workers. But in the end, protections ultimately depend upon residency because so long as people are temporary in that way and they're institutionalized in a temporary way, they will always be subject to that power imbalance and subject to mistreatment, I think. You can have all the laws on protection in the world, but if you're not able to implement, if you're not able to monitor, if you're not able to hold account, it's it's empty air. Currently, the government has uh, the capacity to monitor the dormitories that the farm workers live in. You and I both know that those inspections didn't really take place in a meaningful play. There, there was some video monitoring, but you know, nobody sure. was doing on-site monitoring. So I'm for, you know, recognize that we need workers at all end of the scale, recognize that Canadians will not fill these jobs, and recognize that these will be the future nation builders of our country, as they have been in the past. And I'm fine to simplify the sort of the practical solution. Is it looking at the caregivers pathway that we currently have, where if someone has helped support as a caregiver in someone's home for X number of years, then they would be deemed to be a permanent resident upon completing that work? Well, something like that. That program is so new that it's hard for me to say that's it. It hasn't been evaluated. I've heard there are lots of problems with it, but something along that line, I'm hoping that by next year, when the picking season comes along, that we will have some changes in this in this program. And something that most people don't know, and I find it really quite abhorrent, is that farm laborers must pay into EI, as, do, as must their employers, because it's the law of the land. But they don't have access to it. So they pay into a benefit and they don't get it. I do hope, if we learn anything from the pandemic as it relates to essential workers, it is that there is that connection, in so many cases at least, between essential workers and migrant workers, and that we find ways to make sure that real protections, and that means prioritizing permanent residency through pathways, that real protections are afforded to to migrant workers. Now, you have not only been vocal about protecting migrant workers, you've also been vocal about stronger resettlement of refugees, and you've also been vocal about increasing humanitarian assistance. And one of the ways in which you've advocated for increasing humanitarian assistance is actually building off of Erwin Kotler's work on the Magnitsky Act. And Walk me through what the repurposing frozen assets to assist the forcibly displaced. Why should I support that legislation? Oh, you must support it. And and to make it easier, we call it FARA. This bill, which died on the order paper last year, you know, it's still in the mandate letter of Minister Champagne to expand the sanctions in the Magnitsky Act. It would work in this way. Currently, the Magnitsky Act, and we have roughly, I think, 90 people on the Magnitsky list in Canada, which means that they are not able to enter Canada. And it means that their assets in Canada have been frozen by FinTrack. And I'm talking primarily about financial assets, maybe not real estate as much. The proposal I have made is that these assets should be repurposed back to those who have suffered the most, and in particular, repurposed back to populations that have been forcibly displaced through the activities of kleptocrats. And I'll give you a few examples. You know, the generals in the Tatmadaw in Myanmar have created mass force displacement of close to a million Rohingya. These people may not have access 
to real life or opportunity or health or safety or security for decades. I, I can't even imagine their lives. And yet, these generals may well have assets in Canada. South Sudan, the same. I mean, the re situation seems to have been a little resolved. But at the same time, refugees from South Sudan have poured into Uganda and Kenya. And the names of generals are on our Magnitsky list. Then look at Venezuela, where millions, millions have been stolen and placed into safekeeping in safe havens. You know, let's, let's understand that corrupt leaders who corrupt money want to put it into incorruptible places like Canada. And so my proposal is quite simple. It is this, that the attorney general would recommend that a Canadian court hold hearings, call witnesses, subject matter experts, examine the issues, including witnesses from the family whose assets may have been frozen, and then make a decision as to whether the assets should be repurposed or not, and if so, how. And sending money back to people who have been displaced is a complicated matter. The court may well have to rely on international multilateral institutions such as the UNHCR or the WHO or Medicines Sans Frontieres or, or an institute like this. Now, this idea has not been, you know, sort of plucked from the heavens. It has been implemented in Switzerland. Interesting. Switzerland is the haven, was the haven of corrupt money. We all know that. And then they, there was a, a particular case where monies were found to have been stolen from Kazakhstan. And the Swiss government enacted a law by which this money would be returned to Kazakhstan for the purpose of educating the children and a special foundation was set up to disperse and monitor the funds. So that's exactly what this bill will do. Well, it sounds like something worthy of support, and it certainly seems like a positive extension of the Magnitsky Act. I would think very simply, you should call it the Poetic Justice Act, though, because it ensures that those who have done some wrong are penalized, but the way that they are penalized is ensuring that their assets go to do some good. I've noted that down. Uh, <laughs> next time I read, I'm actually hoping that the government will table it and not me. But if I have to, I will call it the Poetic Justice Act. Okay, I'm glad I could contribute. Okay. Yeah. When you have dedicated your life to diversity and to immigration and integration and ensuring that we are thinking of immigration differently than we see countries other than Canada, in many cases, are looking more inward and there's more fear mongering around immigration. Certainly, that's what we saw in the Brexit campaign, certainly to some extent, that's what we saw in the Trump campaign. And we've seen glimpses of it in Canada, but we haven't seen the same kind of national conversation to that end, in part because of, I think, efforts like yours. And we're decades spent building a really serious and, and, and thoughtful conversation about what immigration really means to our country. And then you look at the safe third country agreement. Is the United States a safe third country? I think our courts have decided that it is not a safe third country. I'm disappointed that our government, your party, has chosen Nate to appeal that decision. You know, it's always been a sticky point in conversations around asylum and our relationships with the United States. And I just think you know, there are those who say our government is, is hedging for time. They want a little bit more time to think through this and therefore they're filing the appeal. 
I don't know. I'm not in the inner circle, but I sure wish, I, I wish they had not indicated their resistance to a court decision and just said, okay, we agree. It is the United States as it is functioning now is not a safe country. It may not be unsafe for everybody, but the three cases that the that the challenge was based on, it was proven and the court accepted that the lives of those three refugees were endangered when they were sent back to the United States. My initial reaction was to think, well, there's nothing too harmful about an appeal so long as we take measures to suspend the agreement in the interim and that we make sure we protect people in the interim. And I it's partly because I have some confidence, I guess, in the Federal Court of Appeal, but a bias there, a former professor of mine is, is on the court. But it was put to me that we refused to appeal the decision related to assisted dying out of Quebec because it was consistent with our values and that we had a similar opportunity here. And I found that to be a pretty compelling argument. And when I was in Washington a few years ago and I met with the ACLU on this issue and they described to me a degradation of due process under President Trump's administration, but they also described to me inhumane conditions that preceded President Trump as well. Exactly. I, I, I think there's this myth in Canada that all of this started with President Trump. It, it didn't, but it was certainly exacerbated by the current regime. I think the practice of separating children from parents and, and is, is just abominable and horrendous. Just signaling, I think, uh, on a value base that in spite of everything that we know of that is happening in the United States, that we still think it's a safe country for asylum seekers, kind of begs the question, where are our values here? I hope you're right. I hope that this period of thinking through things and appealing the court decision will give us the right path ahead. I'm not sure I just, I agree with the comparison with assisted dying. Assisted dying was hugely debated in Canada and Parliament and the Senate. It was something that Canadians were aware of and, and felt deeply. Uh, and by the way, we sent an amendment uh, from the Senate to the House of Commons that this, you know, close to death or imminently close to death discriminates. And we recommended that it be removed. I remember I, I voted against the legislation in the House because they didn't adopt the Senate amendment. Yeah, exactly. So the Senate does some good work. I, I think people need, need to know that. The safe third country, on the other hand, the safe third country agreement is not understood by Canadians. It's complex. It lets certain people come into the country over the border. It prevents other people from coming over the border. It allows for cross-border irregular crossings. It is such a mess. It is such a mess, I would say that maybe we should find out this is the opportune time to find our way out of this mess and have something completely different. It has never been entirely comprehensible to me when I hear the rebuttal that, well, if we suspend the agreement or rescind the agreement in some fashion, that we're going to have millions of people in the United States that would come to Canada and they would overwhelm us. And I think, well, there's already a way for them to come to Canada if they are persecuted and if they need to come and, and they can come in an irregular way, because that's obviously an exception to the safe third country agreement. And the fact that we aren't seeing millions of people come here, I, I just can't imagine that we suspend the agreement and overnight we see a mass yeah. increase yeah. In, in asylum seekers. It, it doesn't stand to scrutiny, I don't think. 
I don't think so, partly because the border between Mexico and the United States and now between Mexico and, and the caravans that has hardened more and more. You know, traditionally, people from South and Central America, their goal is to come to the United States. It's not to come to Canada. They have, they have family, they have uh, relationships, there's a large Latino community there, there's infrastructure and support, and I've spoken to some of them. They don't want to come to Canada. I mean, we should wish that some of them want to come to Canada because, by God, we, we do need more people in this country, but that's another immigration question. So I think that's a bit unreasonable fear. I don't want to scare you by quoting something you wrote in 2001, but I'm going to quote something you wrote in 2001. You wrote, we need to do better by immigrants, therefore we need to do settlement better, differently. And you speak of settlement as a means to full and equal participation in our democratic society. And you gave this speech in 2001, and then looking back almost 20 years later, do you think we have done it better and differently over those 20 years, or there's still much to do? One of the things I really commend Canada for is its continued efforts to innovate and evolve and try things out in the immigration file. You know, I, I'm, I'm completely impressed by our public servants who continue to, to find, uh, you know, to gather the evidence and do the work and propose new ideas. So we do do settlement differently. I can give you some concrete examples. Settlement agencies no longer have to, you know, go year by year to the federal government begging for grants. Those grants are now three years long. And they give the agency and the sector a modicum of stability to plan and and to provide services. I'll give you another example. Because of our somewhat successful efforts in dispersing immigrants across the country, primarily to Atlantic Canada, you know, we've got a sort of emerging promising practice from the Maritimes, which is a whole of community approach to supporting the immigrant businesses involved, local communities are involved, schools are involved, hospitals are involved. And that is because they really, really, really want those immigrants to, to come and they really, really, really want them to stay. And so that whole of society approach has worked pretty well in the Maritimes and maybe we could export it to other parts of the country. But you know where we continue to struggle? is in the employment figures. Over time, immigrants do very well, in fact, better than native-born. But that doesn't disaggregate the data. If you disaggregate the data, a really rather bleak picture emerges for certain ethnic groups who are immigrants. You know, let's talk about Caribbeans. Let's talk about African immigrants. This is all tied into the race issue as well, no doubt. You know, we, we haven't really resolved in any meaningful way the gap in the in the competencies and experience and education that immigrants come and the first job that they get. So there are some really what I would call sticky problems that we still need to embrace. And I believe that the settlement sector is one of many players. It's not the only player. We can't leave it up just to the sector. I, I like to make the point that settlement and inclusion is a whole of society approach and not an agency approach where, you know, we love our settlement agencies, but they are stronger when they work with their local business improvement association, with their local hospital, their local school trustee, their entrepreneurs. They're always stronger when they have that relationship. And I'd like to see that grow and evolve even more. And why does the issue of inclusion and 
immigration and integration matter so much to you personally? Why, why have you made it the focus in many respects of your career? I think it matters enormously to Canadians because we're a very small population in a very large landmass. And I think we need to actually, for the future of this country, be more aggressive about the number of immigrants we bring in far more aggressive than we are. The Century Initiative has sort of dreamt a dream for Canada that I fully ascribe to. We are a very long way way away from that. And I'm not sure that's in our reach. But what is in our reach is to grow the appetite for immigration. And how do we do that? We do that by demonstrating success. Canadians need to have trust and faith in the system. And and by the way, just today, an Enveronics Institute poll was put out. And after the pandemic crisis, support for immigration has gone up. It has not gone down. Support for asylum seekers and refugees has gone up. It has not gone down. So Canadians know that they are better protected. They have been better protected. I look at all the people who helped my mother in my home live a reasonable life. I I look at all of them. They're all immigrants. And I think Canadians have begun to realize that. So there may be something in the air now to sort of say, we're going to reach for the brass ring. We're going to be more courageous. Yes, it's going to create some disruption. But in the interest of the long term, we want to grow our immigrant population because of the future of our country. And we can only do that if there is a sense of belonging for all of us. So that you and I, you know, we come from different parts of the world, different generations, but we have a strong sense of belonging to this country. And we need to demonstrate that over and over and over again. Well, if there's an example of success, it's probably a senator and I'm probably speaking to her. So I really appreciate your time and I I really do appreciate your advocacy. These national conversations that have been really disruptive, but in a really detrimental way in other countries. And we, we, as I say, we have seen glimpses of it here in Canada and we're not immune to it in Canada, but I do think it is because of voices like yours and others that we have been able to successfully to date push back against that that sort of sentiment. And we have defended immigration and it's in the throne speech and the the numbers speak for themselves in some respects when you, when you talk about polling and recent polling. So we, we have to continue to hold out examples like yours, but also continue to make sure that there are so many more voices like yours that are defending immigration uh, and defending, I don't know, a more ambitious but thoughtful conversation surrounding immigration and integration together. Thank you, Nate. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 